Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We are living in two different Americas. Would any of you disagree with that? And it's been like this a lot longer than I think most of us realize. The battle between which direction and how far the pendulum will swing has been taking place since shortly after we became an independent country. Sadly, most of us are just trying to hang on. We're angry for a period of time, and then we see the winds of change, and before we know it, we're on cloud nine, only to see the storm clouds gathering in the distance, and here we go again. But we're now at a point where the two basic sides can't agree on anything anymore. We all used to have a basic adherence to the Bible, or at least biblical morals and ethics, or at the very least, our interpretation of the biblical morals and ethics, but now, eh. We could also pretty much all agree on love of country. We may have had different ideas of where we'd like to see it go, but generally we wanted the country to succeed and the people to succeed. But today it's the right kind of religion, like atheism and wokeism, versus the wrong kind of religion, which is basically biblical Christianity, and not all those that call themselves Christian are biblical, make no mistake, and Judaism. And we have a divide between a constitutional capitalist representative republic and socialist Marxist communist theory. And now that we have a pendulum swing that's gone out of control, just like the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, we're right at the point of catastrophic failure as the battle for the soul of America rages on. And my personal opinion is that we'll never be able to calm the oscillations. We'll never be able to repair the fissures. The only way to stop the tug of war that's ripping us apart is for one or both sides to let go of the rope to jump off of the pendulum, to get on solid ground on one side or the other of the bridge. Did I cover all my metaphors? Good morning, everybody. What a beautiful day, huh? On today's episode, first we'll start beating back that wicked sin of pride that we, well, I mean, not not we, have fought so hard to love and cherish. And then we'll let people vote that definitely shouldn't while letting people vote that definitely should. And speaking of bipolar, goal update after the bumper. So. Be prepared to be labeled a hater for showing love, and whatever you do, don't hang your chad. Mm. Because here we go, or, or don't go, or, well, yeah, here we go. If you haven't listened to part one of this two-parter, go back and listen to it. I mean, you don't have to, you can buck the system, but I will not be held responsible for your choices or the consequences of said choices therewith and hitherto and heretofore. To quickly recap, I don't want to do this. I didn't want to do this. I was forced to do this. Talking about this June Pride insanity is not what I consider to be fun, but baseball forced my hand. The L.A. Dodgers inviting, then disinviting, then reinviting the uh, uh, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a blasphemous, perverse, hellbound group of men that dress up as some macabre version of Catholic nuns that put on sexually perverse shows concerning their version of a Christ figure with complimentary strippers, bondage gear, etc. The Dodgers don't care that this is extremely offensive to Catholics specifically and Christians in general. They just want to honor these perverted groomers as heroes, you know, for inclusivity and love. Then the Blue Jays pitcher, Anthony Bass, who <laughs> dared to repost a gram, a video from Dude with Good News, that decried the sinfulness of the LGBTQQIA2 community and pleaded for all to repent and believe. Bass, a professing Christian of some flavor, got slammed for it, took the repost down, apologized as if masked men were holding him at gunpoint right behind the camera, then was asked if he thought that what he posted was hateful, which he didn't, so, you know, you fired. Truth be told, I'm disappointed that Bass waffled back and forth rather than sticking to his Christian views, but uh, maybe this will be a learning experience for him and his faith will strengthen. 
Then the Red Sox pitcher, Matt Dermody, who pitched one game with his new club and was then also fired, the same day as Bass, in fact, because he tweeted a biblically accurate tweet regarding the sinfulness of the gay et al. lifestyle, again stressing his desire for all to believe and be saved. A tweet from two years ago, the Sox did not want that hurtful, non-inclusive, right-wing, Bible-thumping rhetoric to get out there, which is fine because Dermody had taken the post down, but not until enough screenshots were taken and shared and it was demanded he was thrown to the Lions. The Red Sox management and ownership faced the cameras, eyes wide, mouth agape, unaware of, and horrified by the visceral hate literally dripping from their newly acquired relief pitcher and apparently used an AI generator to craft their apology statements with clear instructions to use all the words from the woke buzzword bingo card, then falling prostate, yes I said it correctly, swearing to Baal their allegiance to the sexually perverse among us. In both cases, Bass and Dermody were told in no uncertain terms that not only are they not allowed to express their personal opinion on their personal social media accounts, but they're not allowed to express their personal opinion at all if it doesn't comply with the correct opinion. And the correct opinion is carefully worded, tested, massaged, crafted, and perfected by Satan, it appears. And that brings us to part two. Now, part two could run for hours and hours as we transition, that word being used the correct way here, from the world of sports that suckered me into this to the world or country at large, looking at some other headlines that uh, are selectively discussed in the mainstream media. Starting with the USA Today via MSN.com headline, LGBTQ versus religion, how a gay guidance counselor's firing could affect millions of workers. So this was a story from Pride 5th, 2023. For those of us still living in the previous era of hate, that would be June 5th, 2023. Apparently one Shelley Fitzgerald worked for a Catholic high school in Indianapolis for the past 14 years. Then... Well, religious hatred and bigotry kicked in. She was fired simply because they discovered she was so-called married, but not really married as marriage is a religious institution ordained by God. So let's say she was attached legally per the state to another woman. Apparently, the administration of the Catholic high school felt that having a lesbian in their Catholic high school with the sole purpose of counseling Catholic high school students in times of mental and or spiritual crises may not be the best option, as she clearly is at odds with the Catholic faith of which the Catholic high school purports to uphold. Now, frankly, I don't care about the lawsuit and the ins and outs of the arguments. It doesn't matter. I personally think there is no argument here. This is what we believe. Do you believe this too? Oh, no, I don't. Okay, good day to you then. I do want to point out the hypocrisy of the media, however. Just remember this simple rule, and you'll understand what's going on at all times, in all cases. If you're a Christian, you're wrong. So the Christian baseball players were hateful for expressing tenets of their faith and must be fired, and preferably destroyed. Christians are hateful to not want a blasphemous hate group to be honored by their ball club, and should sit down and shut up and just watch the cross, complete with a faux crucified Christ figure being used as a stripper pole. And now Christians are wrong and hateful for wanting to uphold Christian values inside of their private Christian institutions. Remember, being a Christian means you hate, so keep it to yourself, and rather than be in the world, you should just be of the world. Now, this article is fun, because the reporter, John Fritz, is a total drama queen about this. Remember, this one counselor's firing could affect millions of LGBT workers. Is that true? Let's do a little maths, shall we? So according to a Gallup poll from 2022, 7.2% of the adult population identifies as something other than heterosexual. The adult population stands at somewhere around 290 million, give or take, so that means just under 21 million adults identify as LGBT, or some other letter of the alphabet. If millions could be affected, that means at least 2 million people. But have you seen the pride flags superimposed on all of the corporate logos? 
what this writer is implying is that there are at least 10% of the alphabet soup population that are working in very specific locations that are not LGBTQQIA2 plus friendly, like churches, but not all churches because a growing number of churches are going apostate and affirming unbiblical sinful lifestyles. But this editorialist wonders if janitors can be discriminated against. What about organists, he asks. And I would say, uh, yeah, listen, if I'm running a religious institution based on the Christian faith, whether a church, a soup kitchen, a bakery, or a school, and it's my business or institution, I should have the right to discriminate against anyone I don't want working there. Capitalism takes care of the rest, but discriminating based on religious views is much more important and justifiable than discriminating based on gender, color, disability, or ethnic background. That said, what would have been a justifiable religious difference that this school could have fired her for? What about uh, drug usage? Murder or rape? What about if she decided to become a Satanist or a witch? What if the tables were turned and this was an LGBT private school? Would they be forced to keep a counselor that actually found the real Christ, repented of his or her sinful ways, and expressed faith in Jesus? Would they want that person to counsel their students? Would anyone say boo about that Christian being fired? Uh, Yeah, we all know the answer. Just as I don't believe a church should have someone that's clearly not a Christian leading worship because, you know, they're really good. Just as I don't think a private business should be forced to cater to those that are openly flying the tall finger toward heaven, I don't think a Christian school should have anyone in a position of authority or leadership or influence on these kids that don't uphold the values of the school. It's not a hard concept to figure out, really. But no, that's that's wrong, think. In fact, it's not just in a business or a school or a church. It's in your very own home now. Found on the DailySignal.com headline, Breaking, California Bill would charge any parent who doesn't affirm transgenderism with child abuse. Oh, oh this sounds fine. Again, if your worldview doesn't match the accepted, if your opinion differs from the opinion of our overlords, not even your family or your home is safe. This is quite literally becoming communist Russia or communist China or Nazi Germany, all basically the same difference between those ideologies. The article starts, quote, A recently amended California bill would add affirming the sexual transition of a child to the state's standard for parental responsibility and child welfare, making any parent who doesn't affirm transgenderism for their child guilty of abuse under California state law. Let's be clear what this is saying. If you don't affirm your child taking hormones that aren't for them, if you don't affirm chest binders or tucking clothing... If you don't cheer your daughter on as she gets her breasts removed or her forearms stripped in order to make a fake useless penis-like appendage or your son getting his testicles chopped off and his penis filleted into some sort of vagina-like something or other and breast implants, if you don't approve of medical, psychological, and physical abuse and mutilation of your child, you would be guilty of child abuse. We are quite literally living in a demonically fueled insanity right now. I'm not even going to name the two vile, hellbound excuses for humans that wrote and sponsored this bill. They should be, at best, in federal prison for life. This is where the Levitical laws seem apt. You take evil like this outside the camp and you stone them. You cleanse the evil from society. Well, this bill would give the courts full authority to remove a child from the parent's home if those abusive parents disapprove of their child's perceived identity and not only allow but celebrate the abuse of their child. Additionally, quote, by changing the definition of what constitutes the health, safety, and welfare of a child, schools, churches, hospitals, and other organizations interacting with children would be required to affirm gender transitions in minors by default or risk charges of child abuse. So, number of organizations, isn't that interesting though? Churches. I mean, you better play ball or else, right? I think, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I 
I believe in a sovereign God, right? This doesn't mean I can't have righteous, seething anger for these butchers, but I believe that not one thing happens that God hasn't ordained or predetermined. We know from the book of Job that Satan does nothing that he's not allowed to do. In fact, from an ultimate standpoint, Satan does exactly what God has ordained him to do since before anything was created, and it's all for the good of God's children and for his glory, God's glory. That said, this makes me wonder if this is a winnowing of churches. If God is separating the wheat from the chaff, removing the lampstands, as it were, from the churches that are simply not willing to stand for God, but rather fall on their faces in worship of the state. No idea, just a thought. Now, as expected, this is being fought by a number of organizations and legal advocacy groups. I don't think the bill will stand, not ultimately, at least not yet. But what does it say about our society and our country that this bill was even introduced, the concept even entertained to begin with? It's not good. I think that's probably a gross understatement. It's just just not good. Oh, but we're not done yet. The attack, although maniacally directed toward our kids right now, actually has a larger focus. See, I say that this is demonic, and I'm not kidding when I say that. I truly think that Satan, who doesn't know the future, but having 6,000 years under his belt, can spot the opportunities in our timeline where civilizations are at the right point, a ripeness for massive attack and self-destruction. I absolutely believe that Satan has seen the right indicators align for an attempted destruction of the American society, and that he sees us as a massive threat to his already doomed from eternity past master plan. Ultimately, Satan would like to destroy the Jewish population. If he can eliminate the Jews, he can prove God to be not only a liar and an oath-breaker, but less than all-powerful and thus not God. This, throughout history, appears to be the master plan for conquering heaven. In Genesis 17, God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham to be the God of Abraham's descendants and generations forever. If Satan can force that covenant broken, he can dethrone God. And Satan can't wage an effective attack on the Jewish people, at least at this point in history, if the United States is a force in the world. So Satan must destroy this country. And what better way to do it than to delude it into destroying itself from within using pride, arrogance, and sexual perversion. So, although destroying the means of reproduction, destroying us through sexual diseases, destroying the next generation, the ultimate goal is to destroy us through our rejection of God himself. That's, that's really what we're going for here. Found on BBC.com headline, Utah primary schools ban Bible for vulgarity and violence. In Paul Harvey's famous monologue, If I Were the Devil, he speaks of how he would discredit the Bible. Well, again, we're at a perfect point in our history with the current war regarding banning books. This opportunity to label the Bible as dangerous has reared its head yet again. So a few weeks ago, a petition of thousands of signature... No, wait, no. A school board meeting was inundated with... No, that's not right. A parent... Yeah, a single parent complained that the King James Bible has material that's unsuitable for children. Now, unless you're just woefully uninformed or simply incapable of drawing straight lines from A to B, you'll recognize that this is a parent, a leftist, woke, very potentially a member of the Alphabet Mafia, who is angry that school districts and states across the nation are disallowing sexually explicit, sexually perverse, blatantly degenerate and obviously pornographic materials in schools. For some reason, the groomers have decided to out themselves and they feel very confident in advocating for the sexualizing of children. Again, Levitical law would take care of this problem. Yeah, just saying. So in 2022, the Republican majority Utah Senate passed a law that banned pornographic or indecent books from schools. Now let's just take a moment and Listen to how insane that sentence really sounds. We seriously have to pass a law for what should be and always used to be common sense. I digress. So books, well, the BBC says that books have been banned. They clearly don't have a grasp of English. The books that, uh, that had to do with grooming and transing the kids, forcing the gay onto kids, well, they were removed from the schools, not banned, as parents could still buy the books or get them from the public library if they wanted to destroy their children. They were just removed from the schools. Now, the BBC goes on to say, quote, 
The banning of the Bible comes amid a larger effort by U.S. conservatives in states to ban teachings on controversial topics such as LGBT rights and racial identity. I'm, I'm literally not aware, this is me breaking in here, I'm literally not aware of any racial identity books being removed unless they're talking about eliminating the historically inaccurate fantasy story of the 1619 Project. BBC goes on, quote, Bans on certain books deemed offensive are also in place in Texas, Florida, Missouri, and South Carolina. Some liberal states have also banned books in some schools and libraries, citing perceived racially offensive content. The Utah decision was made this week by the Davis School District, north of Salt Lake City, after a complaint filed in December 2022. Officials say that they have already removed the seven or eight copies of the Bible they had on their shelves, noting that the text was never part of the student's curriculum. The committee did not elaborate on its reasoning or which passages contained, quote, vulgarity or violence. So the singular parent that complained said that the King James Bible, and you can tell the ignorance of the parent by the fact that they single out the KJV Bible, likely unaware of the many versions, so this uniparent said that the King James Bible, quote, has no serious values for minors because it's pornographic by our new definition. Ken Ivory, the lawmaker who authored the bill while crafting it in 2022, dismissed the suggestion of including the Bible on the list of books to remove from schools, But now he's changed his mind, apparently. He called it a challenging read for younger children and said, quote, Traditionally in America, the Bible is best taught and best understood in the home and around the hearth as a family. I mean, sure, yes, but that's not really the question here, Ken. I would say that traditionally and preferably kids and adults should learn the Bible in the home. Traditionally, kids and adults should gain greater understanding and insight into the Bible at church. Also, traditionally, public schools aren't a thing, Ken. Uh, They're a communist invention. But here we are. I think I'm going to do a segment on some interesting Bible developments in the near future, but for our purposes right now, I think we need to look at a few different factors to determine how similar or different the Bible is as compared to these other books. First, we should take a look at the type of literature. A fiction book versus a book that is agreed to be, at the very least, historically factual. Then we should look at the content with a focus of how explicit the content is. And this is a point I would actually agree with. The Bible does have a few accounts that I wouldn't want to try to explain to my elementary age or possibly not even my middle school age kid. But what percentage of the content are we talking about? With the Bible, it's a single digit percentage. Very little of the Bible has what could be argued to be explicit content. These other books, it's nearly all the content. And that brings us to what I'd argue is the most important factor, intent of the content. The intent of the Bible is to point to Jesus, to show sin, reveal the gospel, and ultimately to guide the lost to salvation. Whether you believe in Christianity or not makes no difference. That is the intent. And side note, I'd argue this for nearly every religious text out there, easily every mainstream religious text. Personally, I wouldn't remove any of them from the libraries of any school. So, what is the intent of the books that have been removed from various schools? Well, judging from the singular focus of the books, the highly charged and graphic sexual language, the vulgar language, the drawings, the pictures and illustrations, the conversations between characters, etc., I'd say the intent of these books is to, uh, as I've been saying for a while now, normalize, glorify, and deify those of the LGBTQQIA2 plus alphabet mafia community. If you find any other intent in these books, I'd likely have to call you a liar, and that's the best of my options of, of what to call you. This particular article wraps up with the school district in question finding that the, quote, Bible's content does not violate the 2022 law, but does include vulgarity or violence not suitable for younger students. They're going to leave it in the high school, though. So, you know, that's, that's nice of them. So the content violates nothing. Now we're just making it up as we go along, apparently. The article states that a district in Texas has removed the Bible, and last month some students in Kansas wanted the Bible removed. My apologies for being blunt, but uh, why would I care about that? Why do I care what some students in Kansas want regarding the Bible? What we have is an unthinking bureaucracy, an impersonal machine making decisions. Utah was right to make a law to keep the graphic porn out of the schools. 
But then they just let the mechanical thinking take over. The board even correctly stated that the content doesn't fit the definition of the law, but then they capitulate to the screeching wheel. That's not how this should work. But remember, we're at a point in our history that the only possible reaction to the leftist action of complaining about something, especially coming from those in the pride posse, is to just give them what they want. So the district did what they could within the parameters of the law. They couldn't put the porn back on the shelves for little Billy and Sally. So the next best thing, get rid of that hateful and nasty Bible. And all that said, let's not end on a sour note, as there are some recent developments that are implying that we may have hit an inflection point with regard to the scourge of this alphabet mind virus. We've all heard of the Bud Light debacle. Who knows what the future will be for poor Bud Light, but... Because of their coddling and promoting of the mentally and spiritually sick man, Dylan Mulvaney, they've dramatically damaged their reputation and their bottom line. We've all heard of the response to Sicko Target promoting their woman-shaped swimsuits for boys complete with tucking pocket and how their bottom line has been damaged and their action taken of either removing or at least moving the groom wear to the back of the store and the resultant bomb threats and other threats of violence by those on the left. Not Christians, not, not people on the right, the left as they are the uh, psychotic ideology. We had the parents and administration of the school in Massachusetts talking of the horrors they endured as the middle schoolers wore red, white, and blue, or just plain black, on Rainbow Clothing Day and tore down pride flags and posters and declared their pronouns to be USA. The adults just couldn't understand the hate. The same thing happened in Ottawa, Canada, in fact, with students and parents of both the Muslim and Christian persuasion stomping on these stupid pride flags. A Michigan city just voted in the ban on displaying pride flags on public property. Only the American and state flags and those honoring groups like POW MIAs will be allowed. This city is predominantly a Muslim city. This is in the state run by the horrid Gretchen Witchmer. Just a week ago, the MLB took down pride references from their Twitter page, replacing their flag logo with their actual logo, and the MLB commissioner, Rob Manfred, along with the owners, have decided that putting rainbow emblems or forcing rainbow unis on the players was a bad idea and discouraged it. He reasoned the safety of the players, but what he was really saying is, uh, why don't we just play baseball? He said that pride celebrations are left up to each team individually, whether they want to do something or not, totally up to them. And all of this was in response to a question by the press as to if the league was going to standardize pride celebrations. The answer is no. No, they're not. And thank you. See, we're winning. We're fighting back against the satanic evil. And at least politically, we're winning. That's a start. Now, a few new polls have come to light recently, just in the last week or two. I want to touch on these before I wrap up this discussion. On June 12th, found on notthebee.com headline, new study shows that a large percentage of people who identify as LGBT end up switching to heterosexual in just a few years' time. Apparently, Duke University did a study that spanned six years and tracked individuals that identified as LGBTQ plus initially. Now, just remember, because we throw the alphabet soup acronym around so much that we don't think about what they stand for. As a reminder, L is lesbian, that's women liking women. G is gay, in this case it means men liking men. B is bi, meaning an individual likes both genders. T is transgender, and we all know what that means, especially these days. Q is queer. And I'll be honest, I and, and most humans don't know the difference between LG and Q. Per Dictionary.com, the difference between gay and queer is very important, and this is how they define it. Quote, People who apply the word queer to themselves use it to indicate a sexual orientation that is not heterosexual and or a gender identity that is not cisgender. Some people may identify as both gay and queer, with some using the terms to indicate different things in different contexts. End of quote. So, <laughs> um... Yeah, they, they, they don't, uh, they don't know what the difference is either, obviously. And then the plus, which is everything else. And you really need to get into fantasy land to figure out that one. Anyway, what they found in six years is that 8.6% of people that identified as L or G had changed back to heterosexual. They found that 44% of the BTQ and plus individuals were now identifying as heterosexual after the six years. Um, that's nearly half. 
That's staggering. And if you just look at uh, other, which for some reason includes transgender in this study, I'm not sure why, 69.9% identified as hetero after the six years. Seven out of ten T's and pluses changed during this time period. Also during this time period, those in the study that identified as straight or hetero at the beginning, well, 97% still identified as straight after six years. It's almost like the created order kind of works itself out in the lives of humans given a little time. Now, just imagine all of these young kids that are being psychologically manipulated by demon-possessed parents, teachers, counselors, and pastors being given very, very dangerous, highly irreversible drugs to block natural maturing, and worse, the kids that are being butchered and mutilated for the cause of Molech worship. In six years, what's going to happen? Now, I mentioned this in a past segment, but Jazz Jennings, the boy that was butchered at the urging of his mother to transition to the appearance of a female, you know, so they could make a ton of money by being on TV. Well, back in March of this year, uh, he expressed regret to his mom about going through the transition, stating that he doesn't feel like himself. I'm using his real scientifically accurate pronouns, FYI. According to AllAboutTheT.com, quote, when Jazz was only five years old, emphasis mine, her parents initiated the process of transitioning the child from male to female. See, this is demonic. The parents are literally child abusers and, in my opinion, should be executed as such. But he went through confirmation surgery, that's the chop it off of me surgery, at the age of 18. He is now 22. It's been between four and five years and Jazz doesn't feel like himself and is expressing regret about the surgery. The evil mom in that particular episode was comforting her mutilated son, telling him it would be fine. He was fine. Yeah, but he's not fine. He's been butchered. And mom is a monster, as his dad. Within that six-year window, with all of the fame and fortune, with all the accolades and affirmation, when the rubber hit the road and the parts hit the floor, it took inside that six-year window for him to not feel right. Makes you wonder, would he, if he were able, try to undo the damage that was done and go back to being hetero? Kind of sounds like it. It's sad. It's honestly very sad. The parents and every adult involved are criminals, including the entire TLC organization. Every single one of them should be locked up for life. At best. At, uh, at best. The other poll, reported June 9th, found on TheBlaze.com, headline, Poll finds transgender agenda has lost ground over the last three years. <laughs> Good, as it should. This was a poll conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute, and they asked the question, are there only two genders? In 2021, only 59% said that, yes, there are only two genders. Now, yeah, I know, that's the majority, but come on, 6 out of 10? That's all that say yes? The other 4 of 10 either say that there are more than two genders, or they just don't know. Uh, that's not good. In 2022, that number rose to 62%, and in 2023, that number rose to 65%. Now, that's not a huge swing, but it went from 59.41 to 65.35. That's a 12-point swing in the right direction. In hard numbers, looking at about 310 million people from Gen Z and up, a 12% swing is about 20 million people deciding that the truth matters. We're now sitting right at a supermajority, to put it in political terms. And speaking of political terms, when you break down the poll further, Republicans moved from 87% to 90% in that time. And both Democrats and Independents doubled the rate of change of Republicans, Dems moving from 38 to 44%, and the Indies moving from 60 to 66%. Looking at it from an age group perspective, Gen Z moved from 43 to 57%, and Millennials went from 51 to 60%. And keep in mind, the last few years have seen the biggest push and indoctrination in our history to accept and normalize the transgender movement. We're being told that if we don't agree... Uh, that you can be whatever you feel like being and that gender is a matter of feeling, you're a horrible person and in the gross minority of hateful bigots. But that's not what the data says. So from a political viewpoint, we're winning. The created order is coming through. Reality is overtaking fantasy. But remember, this isn't political. This is a spiritual battle. As I stated previously, this is a point in our history that Satan apparently feels he can destroy image bearers of God, that he can destroy one of the biggest roadblocks to his destruction of the Jewish people. 
Now, we know that Satan won't win because he can't win, at least not ultimately, but we don't know what God's plan is for this country. And as Satan is seeing yet another chance slip away, he's going to fight harder to exert his will, which is why I think, and this is just me noodling things out, this is why I think we're seeing the LGBT etc. movement pivot into maniacal psychosis. So many of them act possessed because they are possessed. So we must fight back. It may be that this is it for America, that we're in our death throes as a country, as a superpower, or maybe not. So since we don't know, we must fight. And although we absolutely need to fight in the political realm, we need to be fighting even harder in the spiritual realm. And this starts with prayer. We, and I'm looking more at me than at anyone else, we must be prayer warriors. Changing a country starts with prayer. And I'm not talking about putting a hedge around the country or binding Satan. Those aren't really things that we do. We repent and we beg God for mercy. That's what we pray for. We pray for his mercy and protection. We pray for eyes to be opened as to the truth of creation, eyes to be opened regarding sin, and the eyes to be opened, hearts regenerated, faith granted, and salvation obtained for the lost. Next, or really simultaneously, we must know exactly what we believe and why. This can only be found in the Bible, which can only be learned through study and should be supplemented with solid biblical teaching. Then we must be truth-tellers. The truth will set you free, but it won't always be fun. As our employer tells us that we must accept and affirm whatever anyone says or thinks they are, we must be kind, loving, but truthful. Now, personally, and your choice may vary, personally, I'll call anyone whatever name they choose. We've always been able to choose our own name, at a certain age at least, so whatever. But no employer should be allowed to force you to or punish you if you decline to lie by using scientifically wrong pronouns and we must be willing to cite our deeply held religious beliefs when declining to lie. We must be able to speak the truth in love when asked our worldview. If we have pastors that are bending to the ways of the world, we must call them out and potentially give them opportunities to seek employment elsewhere. Or we must be willing to leave and find a church that believes the truth. The bottom line is that without a heart change, without salvation, the political solutions can only go so far. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Remember, we're all sent. The Great Commission applies to all of us. Go and tell, and as you go, tell. I know a lot of Christians have thrown in the towel on the side of creation. They're just waiting on God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And hurry up, would you? Things are getting really uncomfortable down here for me. I don't know when God will tell Jesus the time has come. When he does, all the better. But I have to live under the assumption that I'll live my full life without seeing the rapture, which means I need to be always prepared to speak the truth, to spread the good news, and to stand for what's right. We may be at the end of times. We may be on the edge of another great revival. But either way, we must do as we've been commanded. There are a lot of people that are either living in a delusion or affirming the delusion of others. There are a lot of hell-bound sinners that need to know the truth. There are relatively few that actually know and are willing to speak the truth. You and I need to be part of the few. Hurry up and get in. I feel like we need to pick up some speed and get through these amendments quickly before the Constitution is shredded. I mean, just a week or so back, that creepy, cringy, state-destroying adulterer, Governor of California Gavin Newsom, started a campaign to repeal the Second Amendment because literally people that would most closely align with his side of the political spectrum can't seem to control themselves when they get around guns. Clean your own house first there, Gav. Hey, welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 39, which is also part 21 in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. I think we'll be able to pick up some speed in this episode, and by pick up speed, I mean uh, we should be able to knock out the next couple fairly easily, but we can't get them done until we get started. So without further ado, or a don't, let's start with Amendment 23, since that's where we left off, and to start elsewhere would make very little sense. Now let's take a look at the text. Section 1. The district constituting the seat of government of the United States shall appoint in such manner as the Congress may direct a number of electors of president and vice president equal to the whole number of senators and representatives in Congress to which the district would be entitled if it were a state, but in no event more than the least populous state, they shall in addition to those appointed by the states 
but they shall be considered for the purposes of the election of the president and vice president to be electors appointed by the state, and they shall meet in the district and perform such duties as provided by the 12th article of amendment. Section 2. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Okay. From 1776 to 1800, the temporary capital of the new United States started in New York, then moved to Philadelphia. There was controversy, of course, as to where the permanent capital should reside. Specifically, the southern states didn't want to have a northern city ruling over them. In 1790, Congress voted to allow the president, George Washington, to choose the site. And now we get into a little controversy of our own, myth or fact. So according to History.com, Washington, quote, selected a tract of undeveloped swampland on the Potomac River between Maryland and Virginia and began to refer to it as Federal City. The story that goes with this is that the swampland was chosen with the intent that nobody would want to live there permanently and no government official would want to stay there long. They'd want to be done with whatever they must do and then just get back home. Now that said, according to SmithsonianMag.com, this is just a myth. I think we've all heard of D.C. referred to as the swamp. Well, the author of the article said, quote, The metaphor gets its clout from the notion that Washington was built in an actual physical swamp whose foul landscape has somehow nourished rotten politics. The assumption is just plain wrong. Washington was never a swamp, as I've discovered in exploring its first two centuries. Okay, so, so I don't know which one's right. The reality is it's it's on a coast, sort of, with a couple major inlets. My guess would be that the 61-square-mile chunk of land was partially swampland and partially not. Regardless, the commissioners of the city development chose the permanent name, changing it from Federal City to Washington, D.C. The Washington was clearly honoring our first president. The D.C., of course, stands for District of Columbia, and Columbia referred back to Columbus, who at that time was considered to be a personification of the New World, of which Christopher Columbus is credited as discovering. Now, D.C. was then put under the jurisdiction of the Congress, and thus was considered to be a neutral territory, not a state, therefore... No voting rights by the residents, no elector rights for president or vice president, etc. A few times through history, attempts were made to grant D.C. voting rights, but nothing proceeded. So, then we get to 1959, and this, uh, well, this is exactly what we see in our government today. Now, <sighs> follow this if you can. In 1959, Tennessee Democratic Senator Estes Kefauver I probably butchered that name, submitted Senate Joint Resolution SJR 39, which was meant to set up some emergency functioning of Congress by allowing state governors to temporarily fill vacancies in the House if certain criteria were met. New York Republican Kenneth Keating amended the resolution, granting D.C. to have electoral votes for national elections and a non-voting delegate in the House. So, I mean... I'm sure you can draw that straight line, right? Emergency, continuity of function of Congress, D.C. gets electoral votes, and it's, it's like it's like peanut butter and jelly, right? And then Florida Democrat Spessard, Spessard, that's a interesting name, Holland amended the resolution further, adding in a provision that would eliminate the poll tax or any other property ownership qualifications in order to vote in federal elections. So... Now we've got a bill for emergency functioning of the Congress and letting D.C. in on voting for president and eliminating the poll tax. And of course, it passed overwhelmingly in the Senate, 70 to 18, because everyone is getting a little something, right? And this conglomeration, which shouldn't exist, there should be one topic per bill only, was then sent to the House. Well, the House Judiciary Committee got hold of it, stripped out the poll tax thing, stripped out the emergency function of the Congress thing and sent the proposal as House Joint Resolution HJR 757 to the House floor with only the electoral votes for D.C. remaining. Now remember, this started as a bill to manage Congress in an emergency situation, but now that part is gone. The House adopted the resolution via voice vote and sent it back to the Senate. The Senate, after seeing how the House just decimated their resolution, 
stripped the language out of their existing SJR39 and just copy and pasted the stripped down language right into there and passed it by voice vote on June 16th, 1960. Now, it almost looks like this was planned, like they had no intention of actually doing the whole emergency Congress thing. They just used that as a non-controversial vehicle to slide the D.C. voting thing in. But but that would be a conspiratorial thing to say, and I definitely don't want to imply that our government would do anything shady. I mean, far be it from me to even entertain that kind of silly-headed thought. <laughs> uh, anyway, now that this D.C. electoral vote thing, you know, our 23rd Amendment was adopted by Congress, it went to the states for ratification. Now, this one was ratified by the necessary number of states in 286 days, the second fastest by two days of all the amendments yet. The only faster one was the 12th Amendment, which was responsible for the president and vice president to run as a single ticket. So it went to the states on June 16, 1960. Hawaii was the first to ratify the bill on June 23, 1960. Ohio became the final state necessary to ratify it on March 29, 1961. After Ohio, New Hampshire ratified it one day later, then Alabama, wanting to mull it over just a tick, ratified it on April 11th of 2002, just a shade under 42 years after it was sent to the states. As for the other states, well, Arkansas rejected it, and Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, Louisiana, Texas, North Carolina, and Virginia all just ignored it. You know, <laughs> whatevs. <laughs> yeah. So now, per the text, D.C. is entitled to the number of electors they'd be entitled to if they were a state, but it must have no more than the least populous state in the Union. Therefore, they get three, the same number as Alaska, Delaware, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming. Although, if it were a state, this little postage stamp of land would actually be more populous than Wyoming and Vermont and very close to Alaska. Now, what's interesting is that this little chunk of land has a relatively large number of public employees, you know, those that work for the government. Now, I don't think that's shocking to anyone. I mean, it makes sense in our current paradigm, although this chunk of land should have never had a major population of anybody and definitely not a huge permanent governing class of population. So when looking at the percentage of public workers, D.C. and Alaska tie at 25% of the adult population. The country as a whole has an average of about 14.7% of the workforce working in the public sector, with 33 states coming in below that average. Now, the top 10 states for public sector workers are, in order, Alaska and D.C. tied for first, then New Mexico, Maryland, Wyoming, Hawaii, Virginia, my own almost heaven, West Virginia, Mississippi, and rounding out the top 10, Oklahoma, with 16.7% public sector workforce. Using 538.com, adding the top 10, the group of them actually lean Republican by about 20 points. But D.C., our quasi-state in question, is the largest leaner of either party with a 68.2 point Democratic partisan lean. And we see exactly that in the elections. In every presidential election since 1964, the first election they had electors, all three electors went Democrat, except in 2000 when one elector apparently voted for someone else. But I mean, that was Gore as the Democrat candidate, and I wouldn't want my name tied to Gore either. And looking at the popular vote from 1976 to 2020, over 80% of the popular vote went to Democrats every single time, except for 1980, you know, when Reagan won the 489 electoral votes to Carter's 49. Yeah, the D.C. popular vote only went 75% for Carter. Now, we know that big cities, for some reason, tend toward the political left. At least over time, they do. And eventually, they go hard left. When we look at the popular vote heat maps, we see that states like Illinois, New York, Oregon, and even California are heavily conservative, except for the large cities, which dominate the vote totals and thus dictate the electoral votes. Now, here's the thing. This is where I get a little conspiratorial, as I previously mentioned. Was this the plan to get a couple extra electoral votes? I mean, possibly. Would it shock anyone if that was the plan? And unless you're just superty duperty trusting, this is exactly why the Democrats are pushing for statehood for Puerto Rico as well. They would instantly become a state more populous than 18 other states, plus D.C., 
And if allocated as all other states, which why wouldn't they be, they'd have somewhere around the neighborhood of five or six electoral votes, which can become pretty important. And if the left gets rid of the Electoral College, which they desperately want to do, it would give them likely the vast majority of about three million plus popular votes. Personally, I would advocate for repealing this amendment. I'd also make D.C., the federal government portion at least, you know, federal city, I'd make it much smaller and reallocate land back to the surrounding states and force the issue of making residents of what was D.C. become residents of the state having a cesspool of government slime permanently living in, around, and with each other like this is just not what the founders intended. The founders envisioned public servants to be just that, temporary, short-term servants to the public, given a little stipend for the disruption to their lives, spend as little time together as possible to get the most important things done, and then go back home, live amongst your constituents, work your actual job, being a politician was not supposed to be, and they couldn't imagine it being, a desirable lifetime appointment. Okay, so let's quickly get on to the 24th Amendment, shall we? Starting with the text. Section 1. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president, for electors for president or vice president, or for Senate or representative in Congress, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. Section 2. Boilerplate here. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Now, recall... This amendment was actually tacked on to what was supposed to be the bill outlining emergency powers to keep the Congress functioning in exceptional circumstances, which was then cut out of the bill by the Senate, now, along with the, the bill's original language, leaving the D.C. electoral vote bill, which became the 23rd Amendment we just talked about. So the poll tax was exactly that. It was a fee that you needed to pay to get the privilege to vote. The poll tax was implemented in the South, eventually in every formerly Confederate state, starting in the late 1800s, as a way to circumvent amendments that granted blacks the right to vote. These states also implemented other tests, such as literacy tests, that would be administered prior to being allowed to vote. The problem is that the Southern whites, which, by the way, were Democrats, because um, <laughs> they always have been, are now and always will be, uh, the racist ones, they would administer the tests, they would collect the tax, and the many wealthy whites would pay for the tax of others. The poll tax was challenged in 1937 in the Supreme Court, and the challenge lost, with the court stating, quote, The privilege of voting is not derived from the United States, but is conferred by the state and, save as restrained by the 15th and 19th Amendments and other provisions of the federal constitution, the state may condition suffrage as it deems appropriate. This was a correct constitutional ruling. So, FDR spoke out against the poll tax, but after some primary losses of his favored Southern candidates, he backed off as he really needed those Southern Democrats in order to pass his New Deal. You know, a Democrat once again sacrificed blacks for the greater good, right? <laughs> Sometimes you gotta, you know, break a few eggs. A bill to eliminate the poll tax was actually forced through the House in 1939, but when it reached the Senate, the Southern Democrats filibustered and killed the bill. It came up again during World War II, and again the Southern Democrats refused to vote in favor of the abolition of the poll tax. Other efforts were brought in the 40s, but as lifelong Democrat, former governor of Mississippi, current senator from Mississippi, remember, lifelong Democrat, stated, quote, If the poll tax bill passes, the next step will be an effort to remove the registration qualification, the educational qualification of Negroes. If that is done, we will have no way of preventing the Negroes from voting. I mean... Can I just jump in here for a moment? How in the world do blacks support a single Democrat today? As I've said multiple times before, the blacks moved from slavery on the plantation to slavery in the ghettos. And the slave masters haven't changed. It's been Democrats the entire time as they don't see blacks as humans. They're nothing but animals, tools, useful idiots. The whip has been traded for free stuff. And the output has changed from harvested crops or clean houses to votes. But blacks, in large part, are still very enslaved. And it's really sad when your eyes are opened and you see it for what it is. So anyway, 
Harry Truman, a Democrat, as part of his commissioned President's Committee on Civil Rights, investigated the poll tax and determined that the best way to get rid of it was through a constitutional amendment. But nothing happened during his single term or during the 1950s as the anti-communist movement took center stage, but then JFK and his administration urged Congress to craft, adopt, and send an amendment to the states for ratification to the Constitution. So that brings us back to the time frame of the 23rd Amendment that we just spoke of, with the language for a standalone constitutional amendment being proposed. And that happened in August of 1962. It passed the House and the Senate by September 24th, 1962, and it was sent to the states. Now, the House voted 295 to 86 to pass it, with 132 Republicans and 163 Democrats voting for it, and 15 Republicans and 71 Democrats voting against it. It passed the Senate 77 to 16, with 30 Republicans and 47 Democrats voting for it, and one Republican and 15 Democrats voting against. Again, you see who was overwhelmingly for ensuring everyone could vote. Just saying. So it went to the states at the end of September. Illinois was the first state to ratify it on November 14, 1962, with the 38 states required for ratification having voted in favor on January 23, 1964, South Dakota being the last state needed. And as always, who were the leftover states? What did they do? Well, the southern states were not willing to help ratify this. They did not want the poll tax taken away from them. <sighs> Democrats, <laughs> am I right? So Virginia ratified this on February 25th, 1977, North Carolina on May 3rd, 1989, Alabama on April 11th, 2002, Texas on May 22nd, 2009, Mississippi rejected it really quickly, December 20th, 1962, and Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Wyoming, eh, they just ignored it and continue to ignore it to this day. Now, this didn't fix everything. There were still some literacy tests and registration requirements that the Southern Democrats still used to try to disenfranchise blacks. But as we know today, despite the screeching of the mainstream government media, this disenfranchisement has pretty much been eliminated. We now let people vote early and often. And that includes letting the dead vote and helping people by filling out their ballots for them and telling them who they better vote for or else, and also allowing intimidation at the voting locations, etc., etc. See? Problem solved. Okay, I've given my idea before. I'm going to do it again here. The reality is, in my opinion, voting simply should not be a right just because you're a breathing citizen of America. Now, we all joke about people on social media doing or saying just the dumbest things, and we say something like, oh, these people vote. Yeah, but should they? And, and I'd argue no. Take, for instance, in a company, there are shareholder meetings, and there are votes that are taken in those meetings. But the shareholders aren't people that have simply bought the product in the past or are familiar with the product because they saw it on the shelf or they saw a commercial for it. The shareholders are, as it sounds, people with a financial stake in the company, a vested interest in the company doing well, making them money. Now, I do agree that a poll tax isn't right. Wealth shouldn't dictate a right to vote. Literacy shouldn't dictate a right to vote. Color, ethnicity, disability, property ownership, employment status, employer, none of these should be a requirement to vote. Vested interest, that's what should dictate who should vote. In my opinion, your knowledge of the country and your knowledge of the issues should dictate your right to vote. And today, we could easily make that happen. A nonpartisan test is developed. It encompasses American history, constitutional knowledge, current issues, basic current candidate information. Doesn't have to be a long test, but comprehensive enough to determine if the potential voter, you know, has a clue or if they're just coming in to vote Trump because, you know, hashtag MAGA, or to vote blue no matter who. Do they actually know what they're talking about? You take the test, then you vote. You never know if you pass the test or not. But if you pass the test, your vote counts. If you didn't, your vote is discarded. Now, first, you would eliminate the voters 
This simply vote because it's been made impossibly easy for them. The no information voters told by someone to just go in and vote a certain way. The people that are given some incentive to spend 10 minutes of their time to fill out the ballot or to go vote. Uh, yeah, I know that doesn't happen, right? If voting was a 20 minute process on top of waiting in line, that would eliminate a chunk of people that shouldn't be voting in the first place. And then the test would weed out those that frankly have no business voting. I realize that would eliminate the votes of many that vote the way I'd want them to vote. But if we're being honest, if a person doesn't know anything about their country or the rule of law they live under or the issues or the candidates, then they shouldn't be voting. That's how I'd fix it. But can you imagine proposing that, though? Wow, would I be labeled a racist? Now, ironically, not one thing I propose has anything to do with race. It's quite literally just a blind test. But the leftist politicians and the government beholden media who are rabidly racist, who think that those darkies are just too stupid to learn or take a test, they're more than willing to make their feelings known about who they think blacks are as a race or ethnicity or skin color by calling me racist for something that's not. Eh, same old thing. Anyway, we did it. In this episode of the American Genesis, we got through two amendments in one segment. Now, we've got three amendments to go. One that needs to be used right now, the amendment that's taken the shortest time to ratify by the states, and the amendment that's taken the longest amount of time to ratify by the states. We're nearly there. But for now, I'll simply say this. Until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. I feel as if I've been lied to. So I was listening to one of my daily podcasts, and one of the people on there said that she was listening to something and someone, and I don't remember who or what, but the gist was that exercise won't help you lose weight. Weight loss is nearly entirely accomplished by diet. And I'm all like, shut the front door. So I got online tonight, and I did a simple Google search, and there are a number of sites and doctors echoing the same thing. So I grabbed a video by Dr. Eric Berg, DC, link in the notes, entitled, Exercise Won't Help You Lose Weight in Any Significant Degree. Now look, I'm not a doctor, but I do have a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering and an overinflated sense of self-importance, so I think that counts for something, right? I mean, clearly he can't be right. Calories in versus calories out. That's math. I know that's how weight goes away, or rapidly gloms on, depending on the balance of your equation. Regardless, I figured I'd at least listen, because how else can we learn, right? Now, he stresses right up front that exercise is good for you. It helps relieve stress, which I'd argue that point as the thought of, the process of, and the period after exercise is very stressful for me. It helps you sleep better. You'll be more fit. You'll have more oxygen. You'll lower your risk of a lot of health problems. But losing weight isn't one of the major benefits. In fact, he said that diet accounts for about 85% of weight loss, leaving exercise to pick up the meager 15% of delicious scraps. He cites the following data. He linked three studies that showed that heavier people that exercised actually ended up with a 5-15% to 15 slower metabolism. He cited another study that followed 14 contestants of The Biggest Loser and found that 13 of the 14 gained back most of the weight and had a slower metabolism after the show. He said that those doing pre- or post-exercise snacks, protein shakes, you know, stuff like that, they're actually shutting down the process that would burn fat. They're not actually helping anything. And then he said that many people are doing an exercise routine that isn't fat adapted and they're just increasing in hunger and eating things they shouldn't and more of it. And he said that if they do a low calorie diet combined with exercise, they're actually ruining their metabolism over time. And I'll be honest, at this point in the short video, I was scared. I was pretty stressed and I got something to snack on because hashtag coping mechanism. Then Dr. Berg drops the bomb. Don't lose weight to get healthy. Wait for it. Flip it up. Rearrange it. Slap it down. Get healthy to lose weight. Boom. Goes the dynamite.
Then he mocked me directly with my yo-yo weight, diet, and exercise lifestyle. (laughs) You don't know me. I know my body, Dr. Berg. He then says that a diet that helps repair the metabolism, that's low in carbs, it helps to lower insulin resistance, etc. It'll, over time, raise your metabolism. And then he wants you to click the link in his video to find out how. I'll be honest, I'm curious. But I'm not that curious. I'm not going to scroll all the way down, probably have to click on show more. Then I'll have to read in order to find the link and then click on the link. (laughs) Not today, Satan. That said, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Maybe? Anyway, I thought that was at least interesting, so I figured I'd pass it along. Maybe that's why I've been just flipping starving lately, and maybe that's why the last time I put in a significant effort to lose weight, I got to the point where I was just famished all the time. I mean, as of late, I've been hungry around lunch to the point where I feel just a little sick, so I eat a little something, nothing big, just enough to knock down the pangs, I guess. So the last few weeks, I've been at a point of... uh, Just try to maintain where you are, knowing that I'll have a week over the 4th that will probably be pretty rough, and then I'll come back and try to knock out the last bit that I want to lose in July and August. I've been working outside of my main project out there, which doesn't burn as many calories, but does wear you out, and it works different muscles, making you sore and making you not want to work out later in the evening. So I'm not exercising as much. And by that, I mean, I'm not elevating my heart rate to workout levels for a sustained period of time. All that said, I weighed in at 184 pounds. That's down 1.4 pounds from last week. I think that's probably a correct weight equalizing from my vacation trip a couple weeks ago. That's 30.4 pounds down from where I started, but off my goal pace by 4.1 pounds overall. And I'm 2.2 pounds up from my lowest point at the beginning of May. Anyway. Although it's a step back in the right direction, still not what I really needed to be. So this is a light red for this week. There will be one more update before I head on vacation. And I'm thinking right now, maintain. Just just try to maintain. As for pages, well, again, for whatever reason, last week was off as compared to what's been my norm. I'm honestly not sure exactly why I tried thinking about it, but I I don't know what I was doing. But I only read 85 pages over the last week, which is fine. It's just slower. So this brings my total to 4,410 pages, with my next goal, as a reminder, being to beat 5,380 pages. But even at 85 pages, that's more than my weekly goal, so this one stays a solid green. On to Bible reading. Well, I'm almost done with the yearly Bible. I've got nine more days left in there, which at my current pace should be finished by the next Tuesday. We're getting very close to finding out who done it, and I'll try not to spoil the ending for you. After that, I'll be gone for about a week and a half, and when I get back from vacation, I'll start up with my next reading plan, still to be finalized as to what exactly I'm going to do. But this one is a solid green currently at 153% of my goal pace. And devotions, well, those continue on as they have been, so that's over 129% of my goal pace and keeping that one a solid green. God just recently gave the Israelites manna, and the Israelites didn't follow instructions on gathering or keeping it overnight, and then they demanded water again, complaining that Moses just took them into the wilderness to die. And you know, we scoff at the Israelites for constantly losing faith, but We all know that we do the same thing. What I don't get is how they kept doubting God's power. He showed them miracle after miracle. I mean, I get the fickleness of complaining when we don't get what we want, when we want, how we want. But after seeing massive miracles, I'd hope that I wouldn't doubt that God could do, you know, other massive miracles. Eh, I'm probably wrong, though. And that's it. We'll see y'all next week. Okay, bye.